Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 253rd episode of the CodeCast Podcast. My name is Terry Fletcher. Hope everyone's having a great day and a great week. This week, I want to talk to you about something that I actually haven't touched on, I don't know if ever, but it's something that has been coming up in my feed. My Coding Corner clients have been asking these questions, so I thought it was time to bring it to the CodeCast and see if that's something you are not struggling with, but maybe had a challenge with. And that is when you see hospice patients and what modifiers are appropriate, because a lot of people are starting to see denials. And so let's just kind of understand this whole concept. There's two different modifiers you're going to use when hospice coverage is what they call elected. So it means that the Medicare beneficiary has waived all rights to Medicare Part B payments for services that are related to the treatment and management of a terminal illness. That's why somebody's in hospice. And during the period of the hospice benefit election is enforced, then they don't get Part B. So it'd be kind of like being in the hospital and then trying to also at the same time being wheeled over to the doctor's office and getting Part B benefits as well. The doctor can see you in those spaces, um, but there's going to be some um, options there when it comes to how you report it. So when it comes to hospice-related services, there are services performed by the attending physician who is employed and contracted by hospice, and then there's Um, providers who are consulting physicians um, that also who are not employees of the hospice designation and so there's different ways to, to report these services so when professional services of an attending physician who is not an employee of the hospice or does not receive compensation from the hospice for those services Um, When those are submitted to Medicare Part B, certain conditions have to be met. Okay, so, and remember what an attending physician is. Has to be either an MD or DO, so doctor of medicine or osteopathy. Has to be a nurse practitioner or PA um, for services related to the terminal illness or related conditions. So they need to know the patient. Uh, Physician assistant, and then they're identified by the individual at the time they elect to coverage as having the most significant role in the determination and delivery of their care. So again, this has to be somebody who's known to the patient. And the modifiers that are used when delivering these services will depend on who's providing the service, what services are being provided, and if the services are for a related reason to the hospice or unrelated reason for the hospice care. Okay, so first modifier is GV. So G is in giraffe, V is in Victor. This is for the attending physician not employed or paid under arrangement by the patient's hospice provider. So this modifier is used by the attending physician when the services are related to the patient's terminal condition or not paid under their arrangement by the patient's hospice provider. So this modifier must be submitted when a service meets the following criteria. So the patient's enrolled in hospice. The service was provided by a physician or an NPP identified as the patient's attending physician or consultant at the time of the patient's enrollment in that hospice space. Also, they have to be a Medicare enrolled provider. And then also the attending physician may bill Medicare for care plan oversight or other services provided in the treatment of the hospice patient. Now, Medicare does consider, and this is important, providers who volunteer 
at the hospice as employees and therefore should not bill uh, Medicare Part B for attending physician services separately. So if you're in that category, then this doesn't apply to you. If the attending physician has a payment arrangement with the hospice provider, then the hospice includes that attending physician service in their Part A recoupment, what they get for reimbursement, and then they just pay them a, a fee or a, an honorarium or salary or whatever it is. And any services without the GV under those conditions will be denied. So an example would be a beneficiary enrolled in hospice goes to their attending physician's office for a visit. If the service is related to the patient's terminal condition and the attending physician is not employed or paid under arrangement by the patient's hospice provider, then you would have that, let's say, 99214 with a modifier GV. Okay, so do not submit a GV if the service was provided again by a provider employed by hospice or if it was provided by a physician not employed by hospice and the physician was not identified as the beneficiary as their attending physician. Now GW modifier is a little bit different and this is probably the one most of us will see most often. So when the service is not related to the hospice patient's terminal condition, so let's say that they're in hospice for end-stage renal disease, but they need to see their cardiologist for congestive heart failure, okay? So this modifier is used when a service is rendered to the patient enrolled in hospice and the service is unrelated to the patient's terminal condition, okay? So and claims are submitted for treatment for a non-terminal condition, now, if they're seen in the hospital setting, you're going to need to have a condition code 07, and that actually would go to the Part A MAC carrier. But if you're in the physician's office, that'll, that's a little bit different. So let's say an example, a beneficiary enrolled in hospice goes to a physician's office for an office visit. It's unrelated to the terminal prognosis. Um, you would bill it with a GW. So they come in for an office visit. They're there, again, end-stage renal disease. They're seeing you for congestive heart failure. You get that as a GW. Now, if a beneficiary is enrolled in hospice, goes to the hospital for a visit, and then the physician sees them in the hospital, even if it's unrelated, the hospital reports a condition code 07 along with the um, visit, what they're going to have in the, in the hospital setting with the GW. And charts are there to really determine who gets that coverage point. But this has always been a kind of a, a sticking point as far as do we use GV or GW. When the billing physician is the attending physician, the thing you have to ask is the patient's diagnosis related to hospice. No, report the GW. Yes, then you have to ask some more questions. Is the service a professional service? Um, yes, report GV. If it's a diagnostic test, no, hospice is responsible for payment. So you have to you have to know what's going on with that patient and understand the definition of attending provider. Somebody who is following the patient. Otherwise, it would not be appropriate to bill for that. Now, the other thing I wanted to comment on, and I'm actually going to be talking about it on Talk 10 Tuesday as well with ICD-10 Monitor. And this is working from home compliance, not just with HIPAA, but also with OSHA and the Office of Civil Rights. There's some things that are going on, and I just wanted to kind of put it out there. First of all, you need to make sure that you have some kind of a policy manual for working at home because HIPAA compliance and working from home is not necessarily a great thing if you, uh, you're called a telecommuter, if you don't have rules that you have to follow and guidelines, you have to have a, a written policy on what you need. So for example, um, some of the concerns that have come out, 
You have to have an, an encryption from home wireless router for traffic. You have to have default passwords for wireless routers from existing passwords. Um, personal devices have to be on a different network. I don't know if you realize that. Remember, we're, we're trying to avoid antivirus situations and um, also firewalls as well. And then um, you also have to make sure that you have some, you can't leave any kind of records in the car with the patient. Um, you have to protect that public health, or I'm sorry, that private health information of the patient. Because one of the things with PHI is, you know, I've seen people working from their, you know, their dining room table. And then one of your kids will get a copy of one, some paperwork and they want to draw on it on the back and somehow it lands in the wrong hands and now you've got a major HIPAA violation. Or even if your your partner, your spouse, you know, your husband, anybody, your wife walks by and they see some information and they just happen to know somebody, you know somebody knows that person. You never know. And those can be, you know, a, a problem when it comes to being HIPAA protected. The other thing that comes up quite a bit is the OSHA and, you know, what's the obligation from an employer to within a work home, a homework environment. Because remember, once you pivot to work at home, you have to have some agreement, agreement that you're entered into for a work at home and how you are responsible now for complying with the, they're called the OSHA Act or the OSHA Act with safety and health concerns. You can't have obstructions in the way if you trip and fall, that's actually gonna be a potential employer problem. Um, even when the workplace is designated area in the employee's home, the employer retains some degree of control over your conditions in that area that you're, you're working in, in that agreement. So you can't be exposed to hazards, um, you have to make sure you have a safe and healthful working conditions. Um, you have to make sure that you understand that your employer can actually exercise some diligence in coming into your house and figuring out what's going on. Recently, I saw that there was a uh, administrative law judge that ruled in favor of the Office of Civil Rights, which I was surprised they picked this up. And they said, you know what, you can go in and take a look and knock on doors and figure out what's going on and investigate um, any incidents and determine if you feel that there are measures not being taken uh, for a HIPAA security rule. And so they said, you know, you can conduct, you know, analysis and where breaches are and be and you can go there and surprise uh, telecommuters. So if there's a risk or there's a potential risk, then that's a problem. What about laptop, laptop safety, de, you know, situations and devices like that? The lack of a written policy also is a violation of the HIPAA security rule. So you have to have some kind of standard and you have to have an implemented policy and procedures that govern the receipt and removal of, let's say, hardware and electronic media that contain electronic protected health information in and out of your, and I'm air quoting facility, but that is your place of where you're working now. So there was a couple of groups out there. I think one of them was, and it was actually posted, Cancer Care Group, where they had no written policy. They were not only allowing their employees to telecommute or work from home, but they had breach of PHI. They, had, they didn't have locked cabinets. Um, they didn't have a confidentiality agreement before they worked. Um, they they didn't have pay, they didn't tell the employees to disconnect from the company network 
when their work is complete. And so those kind of things can continue to, you know, possibly be exposed to cyber attacks. So there was a lot of problems with what happened with that. So all I want to put out there there is it's really important for you if you are a uh, telecommuter, which means you work remotely, that your work home environment is protected, HIPAA protected. You minimize the risk of the patient's health information. So the PHI is really important if there is not safeguards to protect that, um, that private health information on that patient. And then also, and actually I keep calling it private health information. It's actually protected health information. I always get that acronym wrong. But just make sure that you have that protected health information that is protected. I mean, you also have to know that some of these standards for OSHA, there's some just specific standards where you can't have ladders in certain places. You can't have electrical protective equipment in certain places. Um, you can't have portable electrical equipment in certain places. So, you know, so a lot of things in home-based workplaces, um, there's some safety hazards and health hazards, and you have to be aware of that. Otherwise, it can be a a definite problem and now I'm seeing that OSHA is going to some practices um, employees door-to-door to figure out what's going on so that's not a good thing so just keep in mind there's kind of two sides to that coin and um, not just from an employer perspective but from an employee perspective um, go to your employer and say hey what where's our policies for the work home staff so that we are updated in case they come to our house and then the last thing I wanted to bring up today, I actually posted it to my LinkedIn if you follow me on there, but there was a special edition on Thursday, August 18th, where Medicare posted the creating a roadmap for the end of COVID-19 public health emergency. So did did the uh, acting, you know, HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra, did he actually give that 60-day notice for ending the public health emergency? Technically, no, but if you actually read through the four-page creating a roadmap, at the very end, there's something that said that makes me think he could come back and say, well, that was kind of what I was trying to tell you. So he basically said the fact sheets we are releasing today summarize the current status of the Medicare blanket waivers and flexibilities. And he says, through the PHE, we've maintained a list of the COVID-19 waivers um, and unless otherwise specified in these fact sheets, they will end with the PHE. And then he just kept he just kept going on and saying emergency preparedness is the top of our mind. We're encouraging you to you know revisit all of these emergency preparedness should this happen again. And we are offering technical assistance um, as we're taking steps to prepare successfully for and op- successfully for and operate after the PHE to assist partners. So they're really talking about transitioning now to you know the the end of the PHE. Will this affect telehealth? Will this affect some of the waivers that the hospitals have been uh, working under as far as getting paid an extra twenty percent for COVID patients? Yes. Will this um, affect what was another thing I saw that it was going to affect um, by the end of next year? I guess mid next year they're going to start pulling back the government. Um, paying for vaccines for COVID and paying for testing. Now that's going to have to be something that is either covered under your insurance or you have to pay out of pocket. So 
which is interesting since they made it a mandate. Um, but just know they're un- unwinding a lot of this guidance, especially the one program that's going to be affected would be Medicaid because there are a lot of patients that were auto-covered under Medicaid during the PHE, and now they're going to be enrolling them um, to some of those programs. So it's just too expensive, and we are not under a PHE anymore. They've relaxed a lot of um, the public health emergencies. They've actually also um, rescinded already some uh, combination of those waivers, and they have pulled back a lot of them. And so now they're just going to say, you know what, we're not going to impl- replace some existing waivers, but we don't want to have too much uh, disruption. So we're going to continue to, um, you know, figure out how to continue to roll that back. But do I expect we're going to have another extension? Okay, I know some of you don't like when I say this, but I expect it only because midterms, and again, political, is in October. And they don't want to be dealing with, oh my gosh, what did you do? Um, they rather do that after you vote. <laughs> so what is going to probably happen is I would see, say that probably in October they'll do it one more time and then that they'll give a 60-day notice. The problem with that, and I'm going to put it out there, is that anytime they renew the public health emergency, it's for 90 days. So that means it'll go into January, which some of the flexibilities have already said, and it's actually law, where in some of the final rules where it said that um, certain temporary waivers are until the end of the year the PHE ends. Well, that's a really expensive year if the PHE ends on January 16th. So this is why I'm still waiting to see what they're going to do, but we'll see if this was the the actual 60 days. And this is another thing it says, says to minimize any disruptions, including potential uh, coverage losses following the end of the PHE, Secretary Becerra is committed to giving states and healthcare community a writ large 60 days notice before ending the PHE. But then they say, in the meantime, CMS encourages healthcare providers to prepare for the end of these flexibilities as soon as possible and begin moving forward to reestablishing previous health and safety standards and billing practices. So even though they keep saying, you know, this this really isn't the 60-day, the fact that they said that, saying you need to pull yourself out of it and don't expect, you know, any more handouts or anything like that, I'm wondering if that if that was his way to go around and kind of give it. So we'll see. Um, a lot of people say it isn't. Some people say, oh, well, you know, it definitely isn't and we're going to fight it. You can do what you like, but there are also laws around it and see what, what's going to happen with that. But just so you know, if you're looking this up, um, look up and you can Google it and it says creating a roadmap for the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency. Make sure you're reading it. It's on the CMS blog um, because it's very important for your practice and your physicians uh, moving forward. And I wouldn't want you to get blindsided. Okay, so personal tidbit this week. I get to have my daughter come and visit us and we're almost done with our pool install. Let's hope. Um, so hopefully that'll be in, but it's amazing how they put in, you know, some plaster around the pool and then we have to wait a week for the city to come and approve it. And then the electrical goes in and then the city says, oh yeah, we'll be there soon to approve it. So two steps forward and then 20 steps back, it feels like we've been putting the, dealing with this process since March, but they did tell us October. So if it gets done anytime before October, I guess that's early. So everyone, but of course it's August here in California and it's hot. So it would be really nice to have our pool. Anyway, so everyone have a great rest of your week. Make it a great day. And thank you for listening to the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, 
billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry. Follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma. Music producer Assassin Music. <laughs>